Our scripture reading is Ezekiel chapter 11. As I read the book of Ezekiel, uh, it seems to me that after chapter 11, the pace uh, picks up. And so, Lord willing, in the coming months, we'll be taking larger uh, sections of the book. Uh, We'll feel a little more progress. uh, But... uh, We'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep chipping away at it. This is, uh, if we could take what we just read, the Ten Commandments or what we just sang, and ask the question, why is that important? Why is it important to know that the Lord has delivered and that he has expectations of us? We could see that tied to this chapter because remember that when Israel entered the land, became a nation... The, the Ten Commandments were read to them, and, and God said, this is your charter. This is how you shall live. And if you live this way, if you strive to honor me, you will be blessed. And what we read throughout this prophecy, but also here in chapter 11, is that Israel uh, did not. They said, we will not live like that. And you'll see the indictment in this chapter and the consequence, which we've now become familiar with in our study of this book. We'll also notice, though, that chapter 11 describes and presents to us both a judging and a rescuing God. Remember that Ezekiel is, uh, what we're going to read in this chapter, is part of a vision that the Lord has uh, enabled him to see. And so we read these words, The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men. And as I, and I saw among them, Jazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Beniah, princes of the people. And he said to me, son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel to this city, who say, the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. And the spirit of the Lord fell upon me and he said to me, say, thus says the Lord, do you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat and this city is the cauldron, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God, and I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died 
Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary for them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. Amen. If I have good news and bad news for you, which do you want first? You've maybe been asked that question, and it's interesting that most of us, when asked that question, when given that option, we, we want to hear the bad news first. We want to get it over with we, because that's what sort of feels like it's hanging over our heads. But interestingly, most people lead with the good news uh, when presented with that dilemma. They may, maybe we think that by bringing good news first, it will temper the, the hardness of the thing that we have to say after. But sometimes we need the bad news first. This chapter ends with Ezekiel um, going, going to his, his countrymen in, in Babylon and sharing with them what he has seen and what he has heard, what he has come to know through this vision. And surely he could have asked them, boy, I've got some things that I've seen that you need to know about. Do you want the good news first or the bad news first? And he really brings both, of course, but In this chapter, where he again sees life in Jerusalem, he has bad news to reflect on and to share. He again witnesses and calls out Israel's sin. And this bad news is about sinners like us. It's bad news for us as well. The Apostle Paul says this, there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. And so we, we can't br- uh, brush off the, the indictment, the, the uh, 
judgment for sin, it's, it's written for us, for our admonition, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. But Ezekiel closes this vision, God reveals to him at the close of this vision, a string of promises for everyone who trusts the Lord. And this good news is for us also. And so I wanted to take that simple outline this morning and first consider the bad news, which really is the the first half or so of this chapter, and then close with the good news, which is the second half of the chapter. And so in verses 1 through 13, Ezekiel um, witnesses and portrays more bad news. And this bad news is revealed in three actions by the prophet. Three actions by the prophet reveal this bad news, this bad report. First of all, the bad news is revealed in what Ezekiel saw. So it's a vision. He's he's able to look into Jerusalem, as it were. And this is what we read in verse 1, that God moved Ezekiel, at least in terms of his vantage point, to the temple's east gate, which, of course, a gate could function as an entrance or as an exit, but in this case, it's now symbolizing an exit more and more, isn't it? The glory of of God will be leaving this place. And we know that. We see the, the chariot throne is hovering with the cherubim beneath the glory cloud above it, We might picture, which really a vision is calling us to do as best we can, picture this terrible scene, but we might picture the the glory of God like a bird perched on the edge of its nest ready to fly. And maybe you've seen that and you you look and and the bird's perched and then then it's gone. It it, it takes off, flies. And that's, that's, that's what Ezekiel sees here. From this vantage point, Ezekiel saw 25 men Maybe the sun worshipers from chapter 8, verse 16, we're not told, but 25 men, like in chapter 8. But Ezekiel says he he saw the princes of the people who were left by Babylon to fill the political vacuum created by the deportation. And so these are are the princes now, the, the leaders, the heads and chiefs and so on. And surely we're left in order to, to lead, but instead... We read in verse 2 that these men devised iniquity and gave wicked counsel. So Ezekiel looks out from this, this, this perch from the vantage point of God's glory and the east gate of the temple, and he sees men who ought to be leading, but they are devising iniquity and giving wicked counsel. We also get to hear what Ezekiel heard in verses 2 and 3. And these wicked advisors, a few of whom he names, these wicked advisors use two troubling phrases. Now, these phrases aren't easy to interpret. We don't can't say for sure what you know exactly what they mean. I think we can do a good job uh, understanding it. Uh, But clearly, Ezekiel's troubled by these. These are not good phrases. What what they're saying, the counsel that they're offering is bad. And so there's an interpretive key. They're giving uh, wicked counsel and devising iniquity. And here are two examples of the phrases that they're using to give wicked counsel to the people who remain in 
Jerusalem. And, and the first is this, these wicked counselors say, the time is not near to build houses. Now this phrase is not without a context in the prophets. Through Jeremiah chapter 29 and specifically verse 28, God had said that the Babylonian captivity would be long. He specifies later, 70 years. It's a long time. Where were you 70 years ago? Right? It's a long time. Where were your parents 70 years ago? Where were your grandparents 70 years ago? It's a long time. And so Jeremiah goes on to say, because the Babylonian captivity will be long, the people should build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. In other words, submit to me. It's going to be a long captivity. Settle in and trust me. This is what you should do. And those who remained in Jerusalem, who were not deported into Babylon, I think what they're saying with this this phrase, this council, the time is not near to build houses, they're rejecting uh, Jeremiah's prophecy. I, I think they're saying, well, that advice may be fine for the exiles in Babylon, for those, those uh, sort of um, the, the dross of the people as, as these uh, leaders would have looked at them as, those who've been deported, they, sh- they can settle in and build houses if they need to. They're, they're, you know, they're no longer living here. But it doesn't apply to us. It doesn't apply to the Jerusalem remnant as they saw themselves who thought they were God's favored people. So, the, so clearly they're, they're, at least we could say they're criticizing or challenging or undermining Jeremiah's prophecy when he says the time is to build houses, settle in, build houses, grow gardens, live there. You're going to be under God's discipline for a while. And those who remain in Jerusalem say, no, it's not time to build houses. We don't have to worry about that prophecy of Jeremiah. There's a second thing that these folks say that uh, God and Ezekiel find troubling. Verse 3, the city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Now, it's a strange, strange thing to say, I suppose, but um, we have to remember what they're saying is wicked. It's, it's bad counsel. It's disagreeable to the counsel of God. And so I think what these, these men are saying is, is, is they're interacting with how God, again, through both Jeremiah and Ezekiel describes the judgment of Babylon as a boiling pot. Jeremiah chapter 1, we'll get to it later in Ezekiel chapter 24. So this judgment against Jerusalem by Babylon is a boiling pot. So perhaps the inhabitants of Jerusalem, again, are mocking the prophecy. Oh, it's it's going to be this boiling pot poured out against us. Well, we're fine. We're the lucky ones. You know we're we're okay. We're we're still living where we were. We haven't been shaken. We're not we're not fleeing. You know we're not. We don't have to start a new life in Babylon. We're the faithful ones. We're here in Jerusalem. Uh, it's not so bad being the meat in the cauldron. At least we're not in the fire. We're in the we're in the pot. Well, I think even children can see that's not a real safe place to be, is it? Being meat in a cauldron, especially when God says that this judgment against you is going to be a boiling pot. It's not an empty. Pod. It's not a, it's not a safe house, but 
You see, the, their, their confidence of being the right ones, the chosen ones, the ones remaining in Jerusalem, their confidence is misplaced. It's confidence in self. It's confidence in their circumstances, in their perceived blessing from God because of where they are and their history and so on. Soon, Babylon would ravage Jerusalem, and God says in Ezekiel 24, verse 5, that he would boil the city well. And so this saying, we're the meat in the cauldron, the city is the cauldron, we're the meat, we're fine, don't, don't worry about us, is misplaced confidence. And Ezekiel hears this, and it troubles him. It's bad news about the state, uh, the spiritual state of the Jerusalem church. And then we see this bad news or witness this bad news also through what Ezekiel said in verses 4 through 13. Ezekiel prophesies against the self-confident who had this swagger, these phrases and sayings, these mottos that says, we're the, we're the good ones. Three things that Ezekiel says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking as God's prophet. First of all, he says, uh, now, I, there's, there's layers going on here, right? So, so Ezekiel apparently is prophesying in the vision. So Ezekiel's watching himself prophesy to these wicked counselors in Jerusalem. So I know it's a little hard to keep track of what's going on, but, but this is Ezekiel's prophecy in the vision. Verse five, God says to them and to us, God knows the things that come into your minds. Right, so, so he's speaking to the attitudes. Uh, so that's what it says. I know the things that come into your mind, the attitudes, the, you know, it's not time to build houses. We're fine. The city is the cold and we're the meat. God knows the things that come into your mind. He still does know the things that come into our minds. Sin is real whether we do it or say it, or think it. It's real. God knows the things that come into our minds. In fact, I would suggest that the mind is where most of our sin takes place. Since we rarely carry out all that we want. We sin in the mind. We don't always implement it. The sin sometimes is because we don't have opportunity to implement it, which we might have had we had opportunity. Or we, we feel something and reflect on something, whether it's anger toward another person. We, we, we are quite sure we're not going to physically harm them or, or, or you know, slander them, but we're going to think bad thoughts about them, that's for sure. The, the, the mind is where most of our sin takes place. And so when God says, I know the things that come into your minds, he's revealing bad news about us. This is not a good, this is not a compliment, right? I know the things that come into your minds. God knows. Second, Ezekiel is told to say this, God sees your wickedness. He sees. He says in verse six, you have multiplied your slain in the city and have filled its streets with the slain. God says, I see it. Israel has not walked in God's statutes, nor obeyed his rules, clearly. 
you know, violence and uh, murder and the things that are described here are contrary to God's holy law. Instead, God says through Ezekiel's mouthpiece in verse 12, my people have lived by the rules of the nations. That's a powerful indictment. Understand that we will live by rules. We will have standards. We cannot be standardless. We cannot. We do not just go through life and haphazardly uh, figure out what to do next randomly. We have we have standards. We make judgments. But Israel was living according to the standards of the world. She wasn't getting her wisdom from God's word. She wasn't willing to say no to what the world teaches. It's wrong, and I can't do it no matter how popular it might be. And, and understand that, that we, are, we are living under that kind of pressure today as well. The world would wear down your allegiance to God's will until there is no difference between you and those who deny the Lord. You understand the devil doesn't care what your profession is or your, your, your profession of faith doesn't care what you say you believe, that there is a God or whatever. The devil believes that too. But what is your allegiance? What is, where is your commitment? What, what standard are you living by? That's, that's as, as James says, that's where we justify our faith where we demonstrate that our faith means something. And so this indictment, God sees your wickedness. You're living according to the standards of the nations, not according to my laws, my statutes. That's bad news for us as well, because we can do it. We can do it. We do it, don't we? God sees your wickedness. Third, Ezekiel was told to say this, God will judge you. God will judge you. Ezekiel affirms Jeremiah's prophecy from Jeremiah 21 and Jeremiah 38. Jeremiah prophesies there that those who submit to God's judgment would be spared, but those who resisted would die. You read about that in sort of preview form, even in the book of the kings and the chronicles where some of the latter kings uh, decide we're going to go seek allegiance and alliances with, with Egypt because Babylon is coming after us and we're going to resist this. This can't be from God, this judgment from Babylon. So we're going to try to fight this thing and, and Egypt will help us. And, and of course, Egypt can't help. And the last king of Israel, his eyes are gouged out. And the last thing he saw before was his sons being killed. But, but Jeremiah had, had warned them against that. He said, you, you submit to God's judgment like a child who knows that they're being rightly disciplined and doesn't fight it or scream, you know, uh, doesn't try to run, out, run away, but says, I know, I know this, I deserve this. And so I submit to this judgment. God says, you do that and you'll live, but you resist and you'll die. And, and that's what Ezekiel is, is reminding the people of again. And as Ezekiel is saying this, as he's saying, if you submit to God's judgment, you'll live. But if you resist it, you'll die. If you be like those people from Jerusalem who got to stay and say, look, we're resisting. We're staying in the Holy Land. We're doing the right thing. As Ezekiel is announcing this judgment, a man named Pelatiah 
drops dead in the vision. So, so now how's that for an object lesson? God says, if you resist me, you'll die. If you submit to me, you'll live. And then Pelatiah drops dead. One of the resistors. One of the ones who's trusting in his own righteousness, in his own cleverness, is confident in himself. He drops dead. In other words, what, what Ezekiel is saying is proven. He's also demonstrating that the judgment had begun as this man who drops dead, as he dies, the, the faithful in Jerusalem, however many there were, uh, was now rid of at least one wicked counselor because Pelatiah is no, he's one of these guys named in uh, the first part of the chapter. Pelatiah, the son of Beniah, princes of the people, these are wicked counselors devising iniquity and now one of them's dead. Pelatiah, ironically, means in Hebrew, Yahweh saves. That's a good name. He had a good name, but he had a wicked heart. He lived a wicked life. His good name was useless for him. If, if we likewise have unrepentant hearts, then our names or our reputations or our works will not help. God judges sin. That's what Ezekiel says. And so, so here's the bad news from the first part of chapter 11, this closing chapter in the vision, the bad news, I think we could paraphrase or, or rather summarize the bad news from the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 10. The answer says this, God is terribly angry about the sin we commit. I think that's a summary of, of the bad news in this vision that Ezekiel sees. God is terribly angry about the sin we, can, we commit. He will not be mocked. He still sees and hears and speaks and acts. His condemnation of sinners is, uh, sinners like us, is based on real and undeniable facts. The ignored truth, not only in the day described here, but in our day as well, the ignored truth is this, that God is not only merciful, he is also just. That's a truth, but it's ignored today. It was ignored in, in uh, Ezekiel's day where like, like then and, and like now, it's, it's much more pleasant, it seems, to say God is, you know, my God is only loving. My God is only kind and merciful. And of course, the, the, the giveaway that that's a bad line of thought should be when a person says my God or the, basically the God I've dreamed up, the God I've imagined doesn't, you know, doesn't do this or that or the other thing. But what does the Bible say? And the Bible says that God is not only merciful, he is also just. He's terribly angry with our sin. He's right to be terribly angry with our sin. He's not, throw, he's, he's not imbalanced. He's not throwing a tantrum. He's not uncontrolled. He's in a, in a holy way. He is angry at how that which he made very good has now been deformed by sin. God is not only merciful, he is also just. 
but he is also merciful. And that's how the chapter closes. God is also merciful. We, can't, we, we have to have both, don't we? We can't detach either. Your Christianity will be terribly deformed if you lean more heavily on either the justice of God or the mercy of God, or certainly to, if you lean to the neglect of the other, your Christianity will be imbalanced. So we need to see the good news, and thankfully the, the good news is presented here. God rescues in verses 14 through 25, and God makes six promises to the exiles. Remember, this is what, what Ezekiel is witnessing in this vision, what he's taking in, he has to bring back, not that he's gone anywhere, but he has to bring back to those who are surrounding him in Babylon. That's what he, he does in verse 24. The spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up for me and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. So what does Ezekiel say to them? Well, he says, there's, there's some bad news, fellas. We, uh, God is terribly angry at our sin, but there's good news too. And, and he ends on the good news and it's a string of promises. Let me, let's, let's work through them. Just walking from verse 14 on to the end of the chapter. First of all, God promises a remnant, a remnant, a, a remainder. Uh, all Israel has sinned, but not all Israel will be destroyed. That's God's grace. That's God's kindness. It looks like all Israel will be destroyed. Like in a previous chapter, to Ezekiel, God's judgment seems absolute. Verse 13, when Pelatiah died, he falls down and cries out, Oh Lord, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Are, are they all going to die? It seemed like it, just like it seemed has, had seemed like it before when God sent a flood to cover the earth. It would seem to be a very natural question. Oh, Lord God, will you destroy the remnant of your people? But he doesn't. He saves Noah's family in the flood. And, and this is God's way. He will save a part, a remnant of the nation of Israel. And in fact, contrary to the claims of those who remained in Jerusalem, who were not exiled, the future of Israel and of the church rested with the exiles in Babylon. That was the future. Remember, those who submitted to the discipline of God in, in Babylon for 70 years, we're talking generations, that is where the remnant was, the faithful, the, the remainder. Beautiful phrase in verse 16. God says, I removed them, speaking of those who were deported, I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. How ironic. Those who remain in Jerusalem says, we have our sanctuary. We have our temple. We have our city. And God says, you've rejected me for a building, for a place. I would be your sanctuary. And, and that's what God says about those who he's deported. They've, they've, they no longer have the building. They no longer have the city. They're sad that they're far away from home. But he says, I will be your sanctuary. God promises a remnant. And that's the promise throughout every age. 
the Lord is preserving a people. And we trust by God's grace that we are among that people. And if we trust in the Lord Jesus, we, we can say, by your mercy, you've drawn me out of the world and brought me into uh, that, that little nation in the world called the people of God. So God promises a remnant. God also promises, secondly, rebuke. It's a promise, not the kind of promise that uh, we often claim or look forward to or want, but understand that Israel's exile in Babylon was a rebuke from God. So God is saying, I, I sent them into the nations, into the uh, in, in, among the Babylonians. So it's a rebuke, but it's a loving rebuke. It served a good purpose as, as rebuke ought to, as good discipline will. Um, and, and this is what the, the discipline of God, the deportation of the Jewish, many of the Jewish people into Babylon, what it accomplished. One writer, I think, put it so well in saying this, a spiritual priesthood such as the Lord sought could only be found among the broken hearts of the captivity. Weaned there from their fleshly confidences, humbled in the dust, melted and fused in the hot furnace of affliction, they were in a condition to receive the riches of divine grace and repair anew to God for strength and blessing. What do you have when you're a banished people living among people who don't speak your language, who don't worship your God, your house is gone. You may not be living with many of your family members anymore. You don't have, the t- you're just, you're cast out. What do you have at that moment? Well, if you have a tender heart, you know, well, I have the Lord. I have God in this place. And so that rebuke brings about the right kind of attitude for these exiles to receive God. And it's always true into our day as well. And take this with you into the, the loving discipline that you receive from the Lord's hand. God disciplines those he loves for their good. And that's what this deportation is. It's a loving discipline from God. But there's not just a promise of rebuke. Third, there's the promise, God promises restoration. He says in verse 17, that he would restore his people to their land. This was Jeremiah's message as well. It's going to be 70 years. So settle in, build houses, grow gardens. 70 years is quite a, little, quite a while. And you can't just wait this one out. You got to, I mean, in a, in a temporary situation, you, you can't just, you got to build houses. And, but you will be restored to the land. You will come back. Now, what is God really promising here? I, I would suggest that, that this promise in verse 17 that they will return to the land of Israel was not fulfilled, or at least not perfectly fulfilled, when the Persian king Cyrus allowed the Israelites to return to the promised land and rebuild the temple. Now, that was a, certainly a part of it. But remember that even when the people came back to the land after 70 years under King Cyrus, they, they rebuilt the wall of the city and the temple, but they also cried because they perceived that this, that the glory days of Israel was now behind them. It was not this grand re-entry. Remember the enemies of, of uh, the wall builders said, if a fox walks on your wall, it will crumble it. It will knock it down. That's not a good compliment about the, the state, the new, the state of the new city. So 
When, when God says, I will restore you to the land of Israel, he's, he, he has something more in mind than this feeble rebuilding of the wall. This promise began to be fulfilled at the first coming of Christ and will be completely fulfilled in the opening of the new heavens and the new earth. That's not to say that that piece of land and uh, on the uh, east side of the Mediterranean Sea is nothing. It's not to say that at all. But what, what is being promised even in that is something much grander, a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the promise uh, that God is, is making here, a promise of restoration. Fourth, God promises reformation. He promises reformation. Verse 18 says that when God's chastened people return home, they will remove from God's house all its detestable things. We have seen a a really pathetic picture of what worship was like in the days of Ezekiel. People worshiping the sun, people uh, worshiping uh, the, you know, at the high places and these carved images, really, really terrible. So far, such a, such a gross departure from what the Lord had called the people to do in worship. When they return, they will remove from God's house all its detestable things. And that literally happened, again, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah in the days of King Cyrus, who sent the people back. But God is doing something more here. He's promising a reformation of worship among all of God's people. God is teaching his people a more universal truth that he does not dwell in temples made by hands. You, we hear that phrase often as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Reminder, now of course in, on the table we don't have, it's not a temple, but it's, 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 a, it's a created thing. It's bread and it's wine and it's juice. And, and we're reminded God doesn't, God doesn't, live in these things, but he's giving himself to us. And what he was reminding the Israelites and teaching us is that um, when you come back and worship, you'll experience a reformation of worship, not just in terms of of, uh, ceasing to worship the creeping things and the sun and so on. But what God is saying here is that, that I desire simple, spiritual, biblical worship. He's weaning the people from their dependence, their craving for visible things in worship, which, you know, has always been a problem for the people of God, uh, even before they, you know, uh, in transit from Egypt to Israel, they're already worshiping a golden calf. And so God is saying, you don't need any of these visible things. What I desire is simple, spiritual, biblical, heartfelt worship. How does that happen? Well, fifth promise, God promises regeneration. Regeneration. God will give his people new hearts so that they can walk with him in obedience. And friends, that's the first gift that we receive from God is a new heart. Jesus teaches about that in John chapter three. This new heart enables us to know God rightly, to trust him, to love him, to treasure his closeness. And so David teaches us to pray in light of this promise of regeneration from Psalm 51 verse 10, Lord, create in me a clean heart, 
Renew a right spirit within me so that I can know you. Make me a new person. That's God's promise for his children. And then finally, sixth, God promises a relationship. Listen to verse 20. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. That is classic language of the covenant of grace that God made uh, with Adam and confirmed to Abraham and codified through Moses and keeps working down through the ages. This is covenantal language. They shall be my people. I will be their God. Since the fall, God has related to his people in a covenant, a binding agreement of friendship. The covenant of grace in the Old Testament looks forward to more complete fulfillment in Christ. It now extends to all nations, places greater emphasis on grace, brings richer blessings, includes the outpouring of the Spirit and the dispersal of the gifts that Christ has secured at the cross. Everything that the Old Testament teaches about a relationship with God gets us to the center of the gospel's promise that you can have a restored friendship with the maker of heaven and earth. That friendship that was broken in the garden by sin can be restored. A real walk with God. This point is powerfully illustrated near the end of this vision, perhaps in an unexpected way, but God's departure from the temple in verse 23, that now he's no longer in the temple, but he's on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. His departure from the temple anticipates his return, anticipates the incarnation of Christ. The glory has departed uh, in a very real sense in this, at this time, but the glory would not always be absent. God would again dwell among us. And he does so in Christ. And so Ezekiel could end his report with good news really only because Jesus was coming. The glory cloud has left the temple. God has in a certain sense departed, but he will not always be away. He will come again and dwell with us. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. And so at the end of the chapter, Ezekiel reported to his fellow exiles all that he saw, all that he heard, all that he had come to know in verses 24 and 25. And what Ezekiel likely explained to his hearers, I mean, certainly he said this, what we've read over the last several chapters, but basically what he's saying to them applies equally to us, and that is the whole life of, of believers is a life of exile. I mean, really, he's got, he's got this, this people gathered around him in Babylon, and they're wondering, what do we do now? What does life look like for us? We're, we're cast out of the promised land. We don't live, we don't have the temple anymore. We can't offer sacrifices in the temple. What does it mean now? What do we do? Who are we? What is our identity? And what Ezekiel says is, well, you're in exile. You're in exile, like Moses, though, who said that he was a sojourner in a foreign land. 
It's always that way with God's people. We're exiles, and that's okay. Your, your meaning is not tied to a place on earth or certain, you know, certain traditions or certain habits. It's okay to be an exile. It's okay not to have a lasting place in this world because you have a lasting place in the world to come. And for believers, not so, so what's illustrated in, in this vision is true in our entire life, even in exile, the good news always outweighs the bad news. The news has been bad in, the, in these chapters, but God ends with this, these powerful promises. The gospel of Jesus Christ empowers us to lead good, cheerful, productive, God-honoring lives in exile. And that's true. Whether you're in exile in uh, uh, ancient Babylon or in 21st century America, right? you, you, you have a place to be, doesn't really matter where that place is, but in that place, if you're walking with the Lord, if you, if you trust that he is your God, that you are his son, his daughter, then you can live a faithful life. So go and live that faithful life in exile. That's, that's Ezekiel's message to, to his contemporaries, and it's his message to us today as well. Let's come to God together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us like our fathers of the faith who believed that they had no lasting city here and now and did not cling too tightly with their hearts or their hands to the things of this world, did not put, their, uh, put stock in the powers of this age, but were faithfully walking with you in all of the changes, all of the uncertainty, knowing that they could anticipate a new heaven and a new earth. Give us that same outlook on life and help us to believe these promises and work them out in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.